You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. So what are we going to talk about? <laughs> well, I mean, this can go any any number of directions. However, we couldn't help but notice you put a new book out, and I'm assuming oh. you're going to want to get into that. But I feel like books in OCR right now are a dime a dozen. Everyone just wants to turn a quick buck. But as you know, at any profession, there are levels to things. And there's a difference between Joe Schmo putting a book out on how to rock your next couch to OCR and Richard Diaz putting out a book. And um, a vast majority of our our audience are relatively new to running in general. And some are new to OCR as well. And we thought uh, that it might be good to give people a reason why your book's going to be so much better than the masses by kind of starting back further in your career and showing who you are as a coach, the things you've done as a coach, how as an advisor, as you always like to say, um, a kind of build up from more of your roots to how you got here, show the depth and wealth of what you have behind you, and then get into talking about what you wrote and why. Wow. That is deep. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because uh, I'm going to circle back. But l- yeah. let me kind of give you the broad stroke of what what we're talking about here, okay? Um, yeah. As you suggested, and and I love that you that you knew that is that I don't like to be referred to as a coach because honestly, to me, um, given what I do and where I've come from, it's almost kind of demeaning. It's like when you have dinner with people you haven't met before, and they ask you what you do. If you say, "Well, I'm a coach," it kind of paints this picture of a guy standing at the track with a clipboard with his cup of coffee, talking to his assistant while kids are running around in circles. In wind pants. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, um, what really is going on is, uh, and I quite frankly, I referred to it in my book, is that it's a culmination of things that have occurred over my lifetime that brought me to this place with no intent. I never I never set out to do the things I'm doing today. And um, it started... Wow, do I want to talk about this? Yes, you do. I it started it started a long time ago where I made a decision that I wanted to get away from the lifestyle I was leading, where it was just not going anywhere and uh it was destructive and I uh I literally left where I lived, my home in in the Detroit area, got on a plane and moved to Maui, never having been there before. Really, N- not knowing anyone there, like and a fresh start situation. You were like, I, I just need to wanted get away from to. I just wanted to get away from where I was. How old and, were you? Um, I was probably about twenty-seven. What okay. were you? What were you doing that was so destructive back then? Well, just the guys I hung out with, the things we did. It was every night partying, and there was drugs. I mean, everything, everything about the lifestyle back then. And you realize I'm an old man, so we're talking about in the seventies, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, so. I just like didn't tell anyone except for my brother where I was going because I didn't want him to think I was dead. And I gave him everything I owned, everything that all my all my possessions, my car, you know, furniture, whatever. I gave it to him. I said, 
keep your mouth shut. I'll be in touch, but I'm okay. And I left and I started to embark on a healthier lifestyle. And, um, years later, I ended up producing the first professional triathlon for CBS sports in 1984 on the island of Kauai in partnership with uh, Billie Jean King's husband, Larry King, who ran world team tennis. Had you been in television at all prior when you were back in Detroit? No, no. So how, how, how did that come about? Um, well, I owned the Maui Triathlon. I put on an event uh, on Maui that uh, got international recognition. And one day, out of the blue, I got a phone call from a guy named Peter Tortorisi, who was in charge of acquisitions for CBS Sports out of New York. I don't even know how the guy got my phone number, right? And he goes, look, we've been watching what you're doing. We're interested in what you're doing. The sport's taking off. And we would really be interested in having an interview with you to discuss covering your event. And they okay. sent David Michaels. You guys know Al Michaels, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, David Michaels is Al Michaels' brother. And David covered all of the events like the Tour de France, Paris Robay, Coors Classic, all the big cycling events of its time. And he was charged with covering the first professional event for a triathlon. And I ultimately was charged with being the race director and producer for that event. <laughs> Okay, and, and so uh, I kind of got off into this triathlon thing. I've been doing the races myself. I was in pretty good shape, and uh, I, it just kind of all kind of spun out of that. I mean, I you know I left Hawaii. I got into the business of owning health clubs, and I started to identify to feature this. Okay, Kirk, you'll appreciate this. Sure, I own a health club now, and the only thing I really know about health clubs is I used to you know participate in a health club. And I thought, well, all right. So I got this club and it was kind of a weird thing how all that came about too. But I started training people and all I knew about training is what I did to myself, the study of one. So I'd be putting people through these paces and, you know, I'd be walking towards the next piece of equipment and I would turn around and the guy's laying on the ground. And I'm like, what, 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 what's wrong, man? And it's like, I would have to take these guys out the back door of my place, set them on the curb, get them a Coke because they want to throw up, Right. Yeah. And I didn't understand because all I knew was what I did to myself. And, it, you know, it was fine for me. It just I didn't get it. Why, why can't you do this? That was my relationship with people, you know, in training. And then it occurred to me that I needed to know. I needed to learn more about this, especially if I was going to stand over employees that were going to do this job. And this is before, believe me, this is before there was personal training. You know, somebody actually paying someone else in a club to, to train was highly unusual, right? And uh, then I got into diagnostics. I was so fascinated with the idea of being able to look into somebody's soul by doing clinical diagnostic that I got infatuated with it and I studied my butt off to learn as much as I could, invested $40,000 into a metabolic cart, which was what they cost back in the day, mm -hmm. and uh, really got headlong into doing diagnostics. And my club was, by the way, this is like uh, 10 years later, my club was the only club probably in California and probably one of the only in the, in the country where you can go into a fitness center and actually have a VO2 max test done or a resting metabolic assessment done. And uh, because it was so unusual, the manufacturers of the company that produced the equipment sponsored me and gave me an, an extra cart to travel with. So I literally was traveling up and down the Western seaboard, going into health clubs and doing tests on people in clubs. Uh, fitness centers that back in the day when kickboxing was such a big deal, right? The Billy Blanks era, 
all these guys doing these high intensity, and then spinning came about. And then I got really big into that. But anything, I guess, to, I mean, we only got so much time for the show, right? But at got the plenty of day, time. it's like one thing after the other, after the other, after the other, led me to this education. And uh, so, you know, I ended up doing all the clinical diagnostics for the LA Kings, uh, you know, three years in a row until after I quit because got into a thing with uh, management. Um, I'd go through 50 prof professional hockey players doing Wingate assessments and, and, and clinical diagnostics on all of the players, 50 players in a given day, um, which was a wealth of information that I, that I gathered from these high-intensity athletes. I started working with professional boxers. I started working with MMA fighters. I started working with, um, uh, you name it. Uh, people used to walk in the door of my facility. Now, this is later. Health club's gone now. This is just what was my training facility, which, again, was a leap of faith because I invested uh, nearly a half a million dollars in developing this facility, which showcased nothing more than me working with people one-on-one. -on -one. And I had no idea where it was going to go because nobody had done it before. I, I was not aware of any facility that would actually have someone that just stood in there to to look at people and do the diagnostics on where they came from and where they needed to go next. And it's funny, in droves, they would come. Uh, soccer players, basketball players, football players, baseball players. So I had this really wide range of influences from all these different types of athletes. Okay, so let's go what ahead. Time, sorry, sorry to interrupt. What, what time frame is that? Uh, this was probably uh, 16 years ago. Okay, early were you Were you working primarily with diagnostics or were you also giving them the, the now what? Were you giving them the training or the actionable intel on what to do with those numbers? Well, I did um, because, of course, that's the next question. How do I, how do I proceed with this? Mm -hmm. Now that I have mm -hmm. this information, what do I do with it? And, and I think that that was important, uh, again, to my education because I learned from what I would throw out at somebody. And, and I did this with a variety of athletes. Uh, I did the, a, a, a really broad spectrum of athletes. I'll give you an example. The middleweight champion uh, boxer of the world at the time, uh, Sergio Martinez, mm -hmm. um, you know, he comes in with uh, his cadre and they say, we got to fight coming up and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we need some help here. So I started writing prescription for his training, which they would carry out. Uh, I've done this with a variety of athletes. And so we start to see cause and effect. I asked him to do this and this is what occurred. I asked him to do that. This is what occurs. And then, you know, I did this a lot with runners because uh, I started to see a lot of runners uh, a lot of triathletes because that was my jam at the time. I do diagnostics on the athletes and, you know, okay, here's what I want you to do prescription wise. And then they would come back and I'd retest them and I'd see the cause and effect. So this is what I did for the length, greatest length of time. And then, so let, I want to fast forward because this is an OCR community and they want to know about that. Eventually. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. I, I already know I want to backtrack and ask you a number of questions that you glossed over about your your upbringing and all of this, but I want to, we can get to the end of this, like how you got to OCR, but then I have some more questions. We're going to go back. All right. Time. So anyway, I get a call from Hunter McIntyre. I have no idea who Hunter McIntyre is. How do you hear about you? Um, he, you know, you know, Hunter, he does a lot of research. He found my website. Uh, he found that I was not that far away. You know, you, okay. you know, I'm like an hour from where he lived at the time. Yep. And, uh, I, and you, the, what I learned 
from experience is that when somebody contacts me like that, what I do is I Google them. Because I had people come in the door that I'm like, really? You're the what? You're the lightweight champion of the world from Jakarta, Indonesia? You want me to, you know, I mean, I literally got people like that. And I would have to, because I don't know who they are. I got to find out who they are before I can give it any credibility. But I started seeing all these pictures of Hunter. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God. That's I gotta get this guy in my house. I, I, gotta, <laughs> I think I, I told my my wife, I said, Whoa, look at this. Who is this guy? Let's schedule this one for after 10 p.m. <laughs> and so I have a conversation with him on the phone, and he basically tells me that he's into OCR, he's a professional athlete, and he's making a living at it, and he's got this problem, which is Hobie Call. Mm-hmm. And he needs to try to beat Hobie Call at the world championship. And the problem being, he's 200 pounds. He's got a 14-mile mountain race to do. And he's got this little whippet. And, you know, as Hunter referred to him as a chicken nugget on legs, right? <laughs> yeah. And he says, uh, I've got I to I beat this guy, right? And I'm like, whoa, that's quite a problem. And he came out and uh, we sat down and we talked about it. And I tried to convince him that that's probably not the distance for him being, you know, his stature. You probably should focus on shorter stuff. And Anyway, the long story short, I did some testing on him. I saw some issues with the way he was moving. I saw that he was having some problems with his IT band. And we set about trying to improve the way he was running. I did a VO2 test on him. We did some, we did a lot of work together. Quite, quite, quite frankly, we did a lot of work together. And uh, I have to credit him with uh, the willingness to show up on time and deliver based on demand. I'd say, okay, here's what we're doing today. He said, okay, fine, let's do it. And we set about doing all this stuff. And really, at the, at the time, I had really no understanding of what OCR was other than, okay, you got these different obstacles you have to go through, and then you have to run, right? And then it's going to be on a mountain. It's going to be in water. And, and so I just look at it like a Rubik's Cube. Okay, here are the problems, and let's kind of twist it this way and that way until we finally find a solution to the problem, which is what I've done with every athlete I've ever met. So it wasn't new to me. It was just unique, and it was intriguing. So. We started getting into it, and Hunter came. Matter of, a matter of fact, I remember one day he showed up with Isaiah Vidal, the two of them come together. And, you know, Hunter was the only OCR athlete I've ever known or heard of. And uh, Isaiah introduced himself to me, and he goes, uh, I'm a pro too. I said, okay, that's cool, you know, and I'm just working with Hunter. So Isaiah's like sitting in the office there, you know, and just kind of watching. And, and uh, I'm not really giving him any energy because Hunter's my client, and I'm working with Hunter. And he kept like, wanting to chime in and remind me that he was also somebody of great importance in the sport. And I didn't know who he was, honestly. I, you know, quite frankly, I didn't know who anybody was. And uh, then I think it kind of evolved into me getting uh, uh, on my podcast. Uh, I think Joe DeSena was on my podcast and he uh, invited me to get on this cruise. Right. So I was, did you, Kraken, did you go, uh, uh, Bracken, did you go on this uh, cruise? Yes, I did. You were there too, huh? Oh, yeah. So were you one of the guys that were supposed to do a VO2 test with me and didn't show up? No, we didn't. We didn't know each other at the time. Well, nobody did. No. And I was, I was there with my, uh, like, uh, two year old son. Oh. So we were pretty much in the kids' area the whole time. Okay. That's what happened. Well, and, you know, Joe says, I want you to test all the, all the pros. We're going to line them up. There's 20 of them here, or whatever. And I need you to do, you got like two hours, you're going to test everybody. I said, Joe, that's impossible. I can't do a VO2 test on 20 athletes in two hours. I, I need, I'm going to need two days to do this. 
So uh, anyway, he said, okay, they're all going to show up on such time. And I, I just didn't give it any energy. And I, I was there on time to do the work I was going to do. And I think the only person that actually got tested as they were supposed to, oh my God, I'm having a mind fart. What was her name? Um, tough chick, helicopter. Um, Orla? Orla. Yeah, it was Orla. Orla, Orla, Orla Walsh. She showed up and, you know, this is after having been, you know, inebriated all night drinking vodka. And I teased her. I think I teased her for probably two months afterwards that it took me a long time to get the vodka out of my equipment. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I was introduced to a lot of these athletes and a lot of these athletes were introduced to me and it just kind of spun out of out of control from there. So I started working with a lot of these athletes and then I started getting calls to coach. People were asking me, well, can you coach me? And I'm like, okay, yeah, I suppose I can do that. And, and uh, you know, it's what has been about five years now almost um, that I've been working with OCR athletes almost exclusively. Um, and so, I mean, there's a lot of filler I could have tossed in the middle of all this, but at the end of the day, I'm trying to cut to the chase and say, that's how I got into OCR. That's how I ended up coaching. But, um, you know, I wrote program for runners. Uh, I coached runners, marathoners primarily. Um, and uh, I actually created a running coaches certification back in the day that was very powerful. And uh, the, the athletes that you know, sat for the the testing and the weekend of knowledge ended up being very proficient and very capable coaches, and to this day are are making a, a good living coaching athletes. So, um, I, I guess it in what I've alluded to in my book. So that was kind of where we was going to go with this is mm -hmm. is that it all kind of came together with no intent. I never said, well, I'm going to go do I'm going to go to school to do this, and it's going to lead me to this and this and this, and I'm going to end up being a career whatever. Um, it never, it never came out like that. It just, one thing led to me learning something else and that led me to learning something else. And, you know, as I was teasing the other day uh, in December, I'll be 68 years old. Uh, I've been at this a long time. Uh, I've been doing diagnostics on diagnostics on athletes for going on 26 years now. And I've tested thousands, thousands of athletes and look, you know, my, my, my day job is watching people move. And videoing the way they're moving and slowing it down and listening to their problems. Why are you hurt? And what are the solutions to solve that problem? And, you know, obviously uh, fortifying this with knowledge through education and, and attending as many opportunities to learn as I possibly could over the years. Um, here I am. And so um, the book, um, and and I like the way you, you phrase it, Bracken, is that... Um, why my book versus all the other ABC books that are out there mm -hmm. is that I started writing this book four years ago. And I talked about the fact that I was writing this book over four years. And it got to this place where I was like, people aren't even going to believe me anymore because I keep putting it off. And I kept putting it off because I just didn't feel like I was getting to the place that I wanted to go with it. Because mm -hmm. I really wanted, I, I really felt in my heart that there there's something else. There's something that people need to know in order to really cut to the chase and learn how they should approach their training. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a student of the art. I mean, I go back to Lydiard and all these other cats that, that uh, uh, came years and years and years before us that are famous for, you know, what they wrote or what they taught. Um, but it's all... All that information to me um, was timely and it led us to this place. But 
like for example, you know, I might lose some people on this, but periodization training. Mm-hmm. You know, you go back. Well, our I'm audience not- is very in the know. Richard, yeah. they know. We, well, all right, we so, know. They, they understand. What's funny is like I, I sit in front of a group when I'm lecturing to people and I'll, I'll mention periodization and I'll say, I see these people get trout mouth and their jaws drop. And I'm like, uh, raise your hand if you don't know what that is so I can explain it. And it's funny how many people actually would confess that they didn't know what a periodization program was. But at the end of the day, um, I, I met Tudor Bompa. Uh, Tudor Bompa is responsible almost single handedly for bringing. Uh, periodization to the United States. He was he was responsible for the success of the Eastern Bloc countries before the wall came down and the success they had in the USSR. Uh, I met that little dude. You know, at this, at this time, he's probably about 85 years old. He lives in, I think, Toronto, Canada. Uh, but he's like the godfather of periodization. And, you know, so I've been up and down this concept of organizing work over time. And um, then heart rate. Okay, now, People like to talk about Lydiard because Lydiard, you know, he said the broader the base, the higher the peak. That was what he was famous for, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, spend 12 weeks in base training. And from there, you start to escalate into your process to eventually competition. But the intensity grows and you start to depart from the aerobic conditioning that you invested 12 weeks in. Uh, It's a mistake. It's it's a mistake. Uh, And I actually had a conversation with... um, Phil Maffetone. You guys know who Phil Maffetone is? Oh, yeah. So I had a conversation with Phil Maffetone uh, about this and heart rate because Phil is famous for his heart rate, you know, 180 minus your age type thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, you know, Lydiard talks about, you know, intensity and heart rate and whatever. Um, there was no heart rate monitor when Lydiard was alive and when he was doing what he was doing. And it was funny because Maffetone told me, he goes, you know what? He was one of my patients at one time. And I introduced them to uh, a heart rate monitor before they were commercial. I had a halter style heart rate monitor and said, look at this. You could put this on your chest and this will help you to see what your heart rate is. And Lydiard wouldn't have any part of it. You know, he said that it just didn't make any sense to him. He was, uh. But anyway, where I'm going with this is that there's so much confusion that's abound where heart rate, intensity, when to put it in, when to take it off. Um, I, I just found that that was really something that needed to happen. So the the, the title of the book being Training the Dark Side is referring to what happens when you get over your threshold, when you get in this toxic environment. Mm-hmm. And obviously enough, nobody wins races aerobically. And so the, the tolerance, the capacity to get into that environment and survive and or even thrive is a mystery. It has been a mystery for years and years and years. And some of the greatest minds in exercise science to this day will not give you a clear answer as to what the path should be in order for, for example, a marathoner to train in order to achieve this outcome, uh, or even a sprinter to achieve this outcome. And so I've been fascinated with this for, for years because realize I'm looking at this, I'm doing diagnostics on athletes. Everybody, I mean, I used to do this work for ESPN Sports Science and they'd throw me an athlete and say, okay, what do you think? And so I, I've been looking at this and so initially in my book, I was going to go back and study and look at some of the great minds in, in the business and what they had to say and kind of mimic it, which, which is what everybody does. They're copying other, other people's stuff, right? And they take that information and they try to make it their own and they shove it into a book. And now it's the Richard Diaz heart rate thing, but really it's not. It's, it's everybody else that I just glammed onto to, to write something. And it, it occurred to me, I said, you know, this is really stupid because 
I have more information to draw from, research and data to draw from, than most anybody else I've ever met. Let's just go back to work and let's look at my own stuff. So I got my printer out and I got my little laptop out and I started downloading all these reports. I took I took uh, VO2 tests from athletes from 20 years old to 55 years old that I looked at to make sure they were apparently healthy because I had people that weren't very healthy. And you know, I wanted to look at what the commonalities were in the responses I was getting from the work that we did. And I did this first for CrossFit of all things. Yeah. And, it, and that was the thing that kind of pushed me over the edge is, you know, again, Hunter has been the impetus to this because he, he brought me Ryan Fisher and Ryan Fisher shows up at my house and this little, you know, fire hydrant of a guy, you know, he's five, six or whatever it is, just solid 185 pounds of muscle. And, you know, we started talking about running a program for CrossFit. And that's what kind of caused me to go back and look at data to figure this out. And that's what I needed to do to get a solution for endurance athletes, which was really crazy because I would have never thought to go in that direction in order to achieve this end. And that was what finally, during this coronavirus thing, pushed me over the edge to finally conclude the business and get this book done. And so it's been a lifetime achievement that I put into this little book. I mean, I call it a little book because I felt almost uh, I felt almost like there should have been 500 pages, you know? How many are there? There's under 200 pages. There's like 180 okay. pages. Um, but I was able to get out what I wanted to get out. And it's unique. It's different. People are going to look at this. They're either going to look at it and say, this guy's out of his mind. This, uh, this can't make any sense. I don't know what to do with this. Or it's going to just really light them up. They're going to... And by the way, I've been I've been doing these training programs with my athletes for the last year and a half, two years, at great success. I mean, I've got people. Well, not to mention the CrossFitters. Unbelievable results I was getting out of these CrossFitters, following the principles that I was laying down for them. So the the interesting thing about it is on both ends of the spectrum: high intensity, short duration type efforts, or long duration, ultra marathon distance type efforts, athletes are getting amazing results from the concepts that I put in this book. Can you, um, when you when you say like training the dark side, like elaborate on the dark side, if we're gonna like put this into more like objectivity, are you talking like working like past your lactate threshold? Are you talking about like, what is the dark side? Just pain cave type workouts? Like how do you know when you're there? I guess, what 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 does that look like more specifically? The well, that's, that's an interesting question because most people don't identify with where that dark side is. And mm -hmm. the dark side moves for, for different people. I've had people I've tested that are singing in the rain when their heart rates are near maximum capacity. They've been in their sugar since the time that they got on the treadmill. But they're so accustomed to being in that particular intensity, that's just normal for them. They developed an innate capacity to, to survive and thrive in that um, very toxic environment. And then I've got some people, it's like vampires in the sun. As soon as they start to get over that threshold a little bit, they're gone. They just can't, they can't take it. It doesn't work for them. Um, so it's different. That's, that's the unique part of it is it's a very, uh, it's a very difficult target to, 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 to nail down. And, and so uh, getting back to your, your question directly is that, yes, um, it's about what happens when you get to this place where you're, the energy system you're in is predominantly anaerobic. Okay, I, I'm saying that very carefully because uh, the other thing that I, I concluded was it's not a function of one energy system versus the other. We have one energy system, and and we 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 will start to 
you know, based on the intensity of the effort, we're either going to live more aerobically or we're going to learn to get anaerobic and survive there. But it's one energy system. And your body, uh, it's an amazing thing that your body does when it's trying to solve the problem of this toxicity. So initially what the body will try to do is shuttle this lactate out of the working muscles and put it in the regions of the body that are not working reside there and ultimately come back into the liver, be converted to glucose, and then ultimately end up back in the muscle as glycogen. And so that's that's when you're starting to uh, process lactate rather than rid yourself of it. Mm-hmm. That would be something that uh, uh, somebody that's going to go long wants to aspire to, developing that, that, that capacity. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, if you're going to be short, high-intensity athlete, what you really need to do is you need to develop the tolerance that uh, that that uh, is necessary to survive in that that toxic environment. So I started chasing this concept down, and um, I looked at some people that I know in the business that are very 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 smart. And uh, we started looking at these transporter systems. The, so there's there's different delivery systems that move this lactate out of the muscle relative to to the needs or task. And I started to look at that. So wow, okay, so. If, if we really want to end up in this end, meaning high intensity or, or, or long duration, you have to solicit to this, these different transporters to get this to uh, end up where you want it to end up, whether you're trying to convert it to energy or you're trying to get it out of the muscle so you can continue to march. And so what I looked at is it's a function of flow. And this is another thing that just like somebody slapped me across the face, it occurred to me, this is a flow state. This is moving in and out of this energy system and allowing the body to, to identify and develop a capacity to survive in that circumstance that you put yourself in. So here, here's what I concluded. I looked at this in a broad stroke. I started looking at the, the periodization processes that are common. I'm going to do an aerobic workout today. I'm going to do a track workout tomorrow. It's going to be high intensity. I'm going to do hill workouts on Thursday. Um, essentially I'm dancing around and I'm segregating the types of work I'm doing over the course of the week. And ultimately at the end of the week, I'm hoping that it's all going to gel. It's all going to end up being an outcome that I'm hoping for. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It occurred to me that look at it like energy in energy out energy. You consume, we're going to provide for the body in order to produce work. We know that we need protein, we need carbohydrate, we need fat. What I looked at is that, okay, we have these three substrates that are necessary for energy metabolism. I'm not going to suggest that I'm going to eat my carbs on Monday, my protein on Tuesday, and my fat on Wednesday. Right. I'm not going to say, you know, I mean, it's like, I see the look on both of your faces. Like, I see where you're going with this. Of course, right? So why would you want to separate the way you expend your energy on given days? So the flow state is about visiting all of these energy systems, all of the energy, not all of these, all of the energy system, every workout, but tuning the workouts based on demand. So let's just say, for example, that we know that I'm trying to excel at a 14 mile event. Just give it a distance. I know that I predominantly, I want to be aerobic, but I can achieve that end and still have high intensity workouts dovetailed right into my aerobic training. I may have skill development drills that I have tied right into that workout. So let's just say hypothetically that I'm going to train for an hour. I may put like 40% of the time aerobically and separate the other 20% into various types of intensity. And I'm going to allow these things to occur 
based on the way my body wants to apply them. So let's just say that I'm aerobic for 10 minutes. It's getting boring. I'm thinking, okay, I want to drop the hammer. I'm going to punch it up. Maybe for 30 seconds, I'm going to get real near maximum effort. Then I'm going to, I'm going to regress. I'm going to drop back down, maybe get a gulp of air, let some of that lactate move out of the muscle. And then maybe I'm going to push up and get a, like a, I guess the, for lack of a better term, like a lactate tolerance type of workout, just five beats over threshold and sit there for 10 minutes. But at the end of the day, when the hour is done, the predominant amount of influence that I've gotten was aerobic, but I didn't leave the other elements of the training off the table. I could do this every day. I could do this every day. And at the end of the week, I can look at it and say, well, 70% of my effort was aerobic or 60% of my effort was aerobic. Or, or the other, the flip side might be, I spent 65% of my time anaerobic and the balance was aerobic because that's the type of event I'm, I'm preparing for. I want to be really good at, at dealing with this ensuing production of lactate. Um, so what I've kind of wrapped up in this book is showing people approaches to better assimilating the work daily where the body is more agreeable to the influences that they're producing. Don't eat your protein on Tuesday and your fat on Wednesday. Let's just get it all into the system because, and I've been doing this with people and here's what I'm finding. I've got people doubling up the volume of their work, pain-free, ready to rock. Every morning they get up to do their workouts, their body feels good. Where if I said, okay, you're going to do an easy aerobic workout today. Tomorrow you're going to you're going to do you know 400 meter repeats on the track for 10k, um, and then Wednesday and Thursday you're shit. Your your body's just like put out from the intensity. You got all this muscle breakdown that you got to recover from, right? And I'm not suggesting not to visit intensity. I'm just saying that just to hammer yourself into the ground as a workout may not be as agreeable to your body as introducing that intensity. Uh, in a more agreeable fashion over the course of the workout and or the, the week or the month or whatever. That's what okay. this book's about. So you're, you're taking the training intensities and you're matching it more to what your goal is on a race day. So your, your example of a 14 mile racer who's going to be predominantly aerobic, they're sprinkling in anaerobic work throughout the week semi-regularly. What does that look like to the opposite end of the spectrum? Let's say you're taking a, a TMX or a one mile race or a 3K does the same hold true where you're going to spend 70% of your week's volume or time on feet doing more anaerobic work throughout aerobic days? Yes. Okay. So so that obviously flies in the face. That flies in the face of everything that we've you've been told over the years. What have you found in terms of the recovery from from that type of work to be like? It's better. I, I'm just finding that that my you know I, I'm a cause and effect guy. Okay. It's evidence-based. Mm -hmm. So if let's say, for example, you're my client, we're on the phone. I, I talk to my clients weekly and I'm looking at the week. I've, I've written a week's worth of work for you to do. You said about doing that. I'm looking at the metrics and we have a conversation relative to what you've done. And so what I'm getting back from my clients are that they're starting, you know, I'm starting to really like these flow workouts. Uh, I feel so much better when it's over. And they're achieving more. They're starting, you look at it, you're looking at the cost of work. Their heart rates are dropping relative to the intensity of the work. You're starting to notice that they're tolerating more effort and they're able to put produce more and more. I got it, you know, not to get off point here, but just an example. I got an email from a guy in Switzerland the other day that 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 read and participated in this this workout I, I wrote for CrossFitters, which was called uh it wasn't my I didn't call it that somebody else, my partner in this named it. Is, um, it's called uh, 
Dark Horse. What's mm -hmm. this dark thing, right? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of like I'm writing a book about dark. I don't. But anyway, I, I, I went with it. So he goes, oh, training the Dark Horse. I said, all right. So this guy did the Dark Horse program. It's an eight-week training program for CrossFitters. The guy over the course of eight weeks got a 285% increase in his capacity to do work. 285%. He wrote, he reached out to me and wrote me this letter. He goes, and by the way, the guy's got a master's degree in exercise science. He goes, I don't understand this. He goes, this blew me away. I was able to produce 285% more work than I was able to produce the day I started your program in eight weeks. And that wasn't the only uh, response I got from people where they actually reached out to me and were talking about the differences. And the, the workouts as opposed to the traditional, now they're sprinkled with all the traditional uh, CrossFit workouts, but the the cardio components to it are all flow state style workouts designed for high intensity. And people are killing it. People are, I got a girl that she's third in the world masters right now in CrossFit that has been eating, drinking, and sleeping my workouts and killing it. And so, um, I mean, across the board, it's, it, again, it's I'm evidence-based. I have an opinion. Mm -hmm. I developed an opinion based on the research I've done, but it doesn't matter until the proof is in the pudding. When I've got all these athletes coming back to me and showing me, I'm looking at the responses and the results they're getting, and it's it's all been shining. It's all like a new penny. It looks great. So without, okay. with, without giving away all your secrets, you know, you want people to read this book, of course. Um I think you've laid out kind of clearly what your philosophy has become on this based on results that you've seen. If you were like a typical like OCR athlete or racing in the hour to two hour realm, like if you were to break down a week of training, let's say you're a five or six day a week runner at the time, which I think a lot of listeners of ours are, how do you like, could you just give a small snapshot of like, even if it's generalizations, what a week of training might look like with that approach? Um, well, let's, let's start with a day. Okay. okay a day. Sure. Yeah. So, um, again, when you, we don't have, uh, uh, um, video for people to see what I'm doing here, but just try to imagine that with my finger, I'm creating an infinity circle in space. Okay. Or infinity symbol in space. All right. Mm -hmm. So there's an ebb and flow to the infinity symbol. There's no end in, in, in this, in this cyclical approach. So, um, like a figure eight, try to imagine at the bottom of the figure eight, I'm going to put an icon and the icon. And by the way, there, the, the, the training is all icon driven. I've created these icons to represent various things that you do. So in the bottom of the icon would represent, um, cadence, uh, and cadence suggesting that we're trying to, um, develop the capacity to train ourselves, to keep from overstriding, to keep from heel striking. This is the lesson to make sure that our mechanics are somewhat on point. We're developing the ability to run better. We're going to develop a little time for that. Now, let's say five minutes. Uh, so we're on point. We're trying to stay at about 180 strides per minute. And then, I, I don't want to go into crazy detail about that, but let's just say we're at 180 strides per minute. And then now that we kind of got that under our belts, we're going to do what I refer to as motor skill development. We're going to start pitching into intensity, trying to keep the mechanics in play and recover so it's undulating intervals, what is very typically referred to in, in track and field or cross country is strides. Uh, I don't like to refer to strides because strides don't have anything to do with your mechanics. It's just you working harder, recovering, working harder, recovering. So we're going to focus 
primarily on trying to develop speed without violating the way we move. So now we got 10 minutes invested in just skill-based work. And then we're going to move right on up into lactate tolerance. Well, sorry, I want to interrupt real quick. So um, so this is all like somebody walks out their front door and starts running. Yeah. First, they are making sure that their cadence is close to where you want it, which is 180 strides per minute. So they start by getting di- – I just want to break this down because it's very interesting to me. So it, within this run, they're breaking it down. Okay, I'm, my cadence is roughly good. Now I'm going to put in a few what you would call or other people would call strides just to get my mechanics and efficiency down before I do the next step. But this is all in one continuous run, so to speak. That's right. Okay, just clarifying. So so try to try to imagine we're, before I decide to play my guitar, I'm going to make sure it's tuned. You're checking right. your boxes. You're checking your boxes before you do the real work. That's exactly right. So okay. call it dynamic warm-up if, if you want to give it something else as, okay. a, as a name. But we're starting to invest in the way we move. And then now that we're body, our body is prepped, we're going to go ahead and push up into um, maybe 10 beats above what our threshold is. And in the book, I, I show you how to determine predictively a good way to, to arrive at these heart rate responses. So we're going to get about 10 beats above threshold, and we might hang out there for five minutes. 10 beats above the lower end of your threshold yes. or your, your threshold upper so, end capacity? Well, so I break it into respiratory exchange, okay? Uh, I don't like terms like threshold because it suggests it's a light switch. Below mm-hmm. this is one thing. Above this is another thing. It's not the way it works. Respiratory exchange ratio indicates what the percentage of fat versus sugar is being used at that time and space. But I, I find that if you take the equations I created for you and you step over what would be anaerobic by about 10 beats, we're going to hang out there for about five minutes. So mind you, you're not exclusively anaerobic, which would suggest it's, it, it's all about sugar. You may still have some fat being utilized that, you know, you're still okay. It's not a high intensity effort, but it's over threshold. We're going to live there for about 10 minutes and, or five minutes, and then we're going to regress. We're going to fall back and get a gulp of air, get aerobic for a little while. Depending on what the game plan is, maybe we'll spend 20 minutes aerobically. But all of the things that we did to preface going aerobic set the body up to be in a much more comfortable and capable place to produce a better aerobic effort. And let's say that after we've been 10 minutes or whatever aerobically, we decide to drop the hammer. We're going to push up where let's go like 90% of maximum effort for about 30 seconds. Come all the way back, uh, really regress this time because the intensity, drop it down to about 120 beats per minute, reside there um, until you're prepared to go back up again. And then maybe you 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 dash back up and get some aerobic energy. But what happens is all over the court, try, try to imagine I'm putting little dots around this infinity symbol. And they represent the various intensities that you're going to follow. And then you would go through this. And when, when it's all said and done, uh, and your goal was to run an hour, if you, you segregated those efforts to look at them to see what you invested, it could be whatever you wanted it to be. It could be predominantly aerobic. It could be predominantly anaerobic. It just depends on what your game plan is. And you could potentially do this every day. Every day meaning, you know, it depends on on what your fitness levels are, whatever. I may suggest to you that you need a recovery day where you just focus on aerobic. You may uh, do something completely opposite of that. You might you might focus exclusively in the strength component. But when you're looking at the capacity to produce work in a run, it would be written this way. All right. So... I, I like this so far. Um, do you have 
bigger and smaller days where you yeah. where you change your proportions of work you're being done, or do you rely on small doses throughout the week? No, no. I mean, it can always undulate. And by the way, what I what I've done in the book is I've given examples. I'm not writing a template for someone to follow because if 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 the three of us got together to do this, what you might do, Kirk versus you, Bracken, would be completely different. The timelines in which you approach these various intensities would be different based on the way your body responds to work uh, typically, the way you've treated yourself over the course of years, what works better for you. But we want to try to um, marinate your capacity to survive in these different environments. And um, I tell people, look, this, this is theory. I'm trying to explain to you what you should do and start to pay attention. And this is where perception comes in. You know, how many athletes do you know, I think, Bracken, you're one of them, where you you work based on perception predominantly or, or you know, through your career as an athlete? It's most mostly perceptive, correct? You know, I, it's changed over time, actually, from the last time you and I have talked. Well, my point being is that but, but yeah, I'm going I, back, I say to, I'm going back to the way, you know, the way you would approach a workout, you you would work based on your body's perception. And and I know a lot of successful. Of the time. I, I know a lot of successful athletes that that run based on perception. Wouldn't put a heart rate monitor on because they just think it's voodoo. It's like they know what to do. You heard the how, how many times you heard the term? I know my body, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, these people that know their body, they they may be onto something. They may know their body. I'm showing them a better way to know their body. I'm reintroducing them to their body where they can use their perceptive skills fortified by science. And that's what's not been done so far. It's like you're, it used to be, it was either you're drinking the Kool-Aid, you're following the script, you're doing the workouts the way your coach prescribed them, or you're allowing your intuition to play a bigger part in the process. Okay. Does your, does your book talk in theory or does it speak to specifics? Uh, I don't as know if that's the question. As far as workouts go, are you are you outlining like specific workouts potentially, or are yeah. you yeah. you are okay? So you're giving like real tangible things for people. Well, what I've done is here's what I've done is I've created. First of all, I've developed. I tried to um, outline the concept of this flow approach, and then I use examples. So initially, I just generalized flow style training, and I gave gave uh, let's call it the the blueprint for developing your own flow approach, how to arrive at the correct heart rate responses, what to look for, why. I gave, I mean, the first 90 pages of the book is is theory. And and then, then it's just a matter of, okay, here's what it might look like. But then from a general perspective, I went off and said, okay, if you're going to do a, a hill race, this is what your hill flows might look like. If you're going to go to the track, this is what your track workouts might look like. And because Realize that four years ago, there wasn't high rocks, there wasn't DecaFit, there wasn't these functional competitions that are now starting to show up. This is new, right? So I wrote a program for high rocks because it was just so in keeping with my CrossFit program. I've included very specific high rocks approaches to flow, including the exercise challenges that are involved in the high rock. So what I've done is I've shown how you can take this concept and marry it based on the type of things that you're hoping. I did a track workout. Uh, I gave, I think, four examples to what a track workout might look like. And and I always finish with saying, don't just follow the script. Pay attention to the way your body is responding. Develop your own flow states. 
and start to work with that. And just keep the data, make sure that it's going in the right direction. So Rich, I really, I really like that. The I've read, man, I've got to assume almost every coach's training book out there. And they all follow the same script, right? Sure. They go, they, they give you an exercise fizz for the first third of the book, and then they give you their personal philosophy for the next third. And then the final third is scripted templates. Right. And the problem with that, I mean, it's great because it's for the couch to 5K people that need that. But the problem is that if I follow this, I'm going to hit my goal and I'm going to follow this despite what the feedback is. And maybe I calculated my paces or my effort wrong or I overcooked something due to heat or altitude, but it doesn't matter because next day says this. Right. And so I, I think that some people will initially have some pushback against, well, he's not telling me what to do every day. So maybe this is not real, but the concept of tell them why and how to do it, and you better figure it out for yourself because otherwise you're going to follow it incorrectly, I think is really important for people to rather than be a slave to a script, be like an open-minded athlete taking your feedback each day. Well, and, and that's exactly why I did it the way I did it because I, I you know, you, you said it best. It's like every stinking book out there is written mm -hmm. off the same principle. They just, they just, you know, marinate it into a place where it looks like it's theirs. Well, and then you come up with your own proprietary term for what everyone else has already always called something else. Right. Well, yeah, and and I used to have a hard time. Still, to to this day, I have a hard time with people referring to things like tempo runs. Yep. Um, that means ten different things to ten ten different people. Right. Mm -hmm. And we did a whole episode on. Did you? On that. Well, it, the generalization yeah. to me is just useless. It really yeah. is. And tempo is a concept, threshold, or or lactate threshold, or ventilatory yeah. threshold too. Those are definable. Tempo is a concept. Right. Well, and that's only something that you can measure. It's not something that you can uh, ensure that you've created for yourself because that too is a moving target, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to you have to start paying attention to the way your body is communicating with you. And uh, I don't like scripts. Uh, my my first book, which I wrote, I think like nine years ago. It's completely scripted. It's like, here's how to do a 5K beginner, intermediate, advanced, 10K, mm -hmm. half marathon, marathon. It's scripted. And I believe me, when you're dealing it with a book, the generalization is king because yeah, yeah. you're going to get 50% of the people that are going to have amazing success, 20% of the people that put the book down and didn't make any sense to them, and 30% that failed. But you have to, right? And, and so this was the challenge as well because I don't want to have people, I want people to think. You know, the whole adage of, you know, you give a guy a fish eats today, right? I want them to mm -hmm. think. I want to, I wanted to encourage people to think outside the box and, you know, just what's the worst thing that could happen if you tried doing this for a month? Uh, if, it, if it wasn't working for you, fine, go back to the script. Go to, go back and do the thing that was really working for you. Uh, but I, 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 I've, I'm very staunch in my belief that this is something that has never been visited before. Uh, I've not seen anybody approach, and you know, again, if you could see my office here behind me, the bookshelf, I've got everybody's book. I mean, everybody's stinking book. I've read it. I know what they're talking about, and it's all regurgitation of the same principle. Um, <laughs> it's in it, and I just think that here we are, time and space, 2020, going into 2021 soon. We have all this technology that we have access to. Why would we keep relying on information that was written in the 60s? Right. Right. Rich, you've heard a you've heard of the term greasing the groove. I would I would guess. Are you familiar uh, with that term? 
Yeah, no, no, I haven't. No, it's not. It's not like a sexual. Yeah, all right, I was just don't worry. Sure. <laughs> Greasing the groove is like uh, you know you do a little bit of a task regularly instead of overfilling a bucket once in a while, so to speak. And your the, your training philosophy just reminds me of that term, greasing the groove, as in you're putting in little aspects of everything constantly so that they're always all ready to go. Is that a simple way to put it or am I missing the mark? No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, but so try, try to conceptualize this, okay? Somebody reads, um, okay, uh, let me go ahead and throw them under the bus. Jeff Galloway, okay? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Jeff Galloway will teach you how to finish a marathon. You're yep. going to run, you're going to walk, you're going to run, you're going to walk, you're going to run, you're going to walk, you're going to run, you're going to walk. You're never going to PR in that marathon unless you become a faster walker because mm -hmm. you're never teaching yourself how to introduce yourself to intensity. You're shying away from intensity. As soon as you start to feel a little bubble glitch, you, you're, you're off of it and you, you start walking. Yep. I've actually worked with people that undercover were actually doing the Galloway workout when I was training them. And I'm like, why can you not get under this? You know, I've seen data where you're able to run, you know, an eight minute mile for 10 miles. And as soon as I put you out there for a time trial for 15, 16 miles, you, you know, you screw the pooch. It's gone. Come to find out they were walking. Um, mm -hmm. So you can't teach a guy how to win a race if he's going to be walking in that event. So you have to visit intensity. How much of it you visit is relative to demand and capacity. You know, I mean, you get better at it. You can spend more time at it, right? Um, yep. But you you definitely have to visit it. So you say gre greasing the groove. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I've heard the the concepts that I talk about expressed a million different ways. And, and it's funny because I, I uh, was watching, I was watching this thing on Netflix uh, last night. And um, it was these extreme divers, right? These guys were you know, setting world records on, on free dives. This guy, was, this guy from the Philippines went down 200 feet free dive, right? Yep. You know, and he started talking about it. And through the interpretation, he said, well, I get into this flow state. This guy developed this ability to be toxic. And he was, you know, in his own simple process, was thinking in terms of developing a flow state that allowed him to be comfortable while he was under this intense, intense, toxic circumstance and you know like i i nudge my wife and she's sitting on the couch and she points at me you know because we keep hearing it comes back over and over and over again these people that have achieved greatness and you're trying to put your finger on it i've seen so many of them come back and, and relate to the fact that they were in a flow state and i never even thought of it a year ago it never even occurred to me that this is what i've been looking for this is the kind of approach to the work that I think is going to make a big difference for a lot of people. And that was what helped me kind of finalize this process. And after four years of playing, you know, playing with this, I was going to come up with a really nasty term and I didn't do it, <laughs> but I finally was able to pull this off. So, um, and it's funny cause it's been, now that I've got it done. Finally, it's kind of melancholy for me. I just like, wow. And I, I want to put up a promo to talk about it, but it's really hard to like, you know, traditionally you put these deal points, run faster than you ever ran before, you know, all this shit that everybody else has always said. But it's more than that. It's, 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 it's almost a spiritual situation. It's almost like you have to get in yourself and start to have some realization, some self-realization and include that in the process of the way you do what you do. And uh, I think the people that get there are going to be more successful than the people that want to follow a script. Very interesting. Do you, 
So is this is this how you I know like you know one of the more known athletes you coach would be VJ Jones and he's yeah. had a ton of success. Uh Hunter, I know you've coached periodically, I believe. Yeah. Um is this how you train VJ Jones? Is this is this his training? Yeah, I've been I've been driving this into his his head for the past year now. And uh he's he was slow to grasp, you know, he's young and and he's been, you know, he's been following all the rock stars, you know, and he's trying to do what other guys are doing. And he's reads, he's, you know, he's one of those guys, he's well studied, he's paying attention, he's reading. And it's, I had a hard time initially getting him to requiesce to this, but Vijay's attended all of my workshops and he saw me evolve with this process. I mean, it started out where I'm, I'm, I'm out on a trail with him and a couple other people and I get a stick and I draw this infinity symbol in the ground. <laughs> I said, look, we're going to do, we're going to go around this 300 meter loop, but I want you to flow. I want you to like, take it up, visit that little perceptive wall where things are starting to get a little ugly. I want you to rein back a little bit. And then I want you to roll back up again and take a little bit more of it, take a bigger chunk the next time. And, and I want you over the course of this, I want you just to flow through this. And they, you know, initially they looked at me like I was a little crazy. So they started doing it and they, they weren't really even cognizant of the outcome. But the more I started to get into this, the more I started to develop my 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 concepts and my notions, he started to own it. He started to wear it. So he's doing a lot of this type of work. I, I would say that it's probably, well, I write his programs for him, but I, I know he's doing this work. But he'll do this. And he's, uh, you, know, you know, with this coronavirus and everything, it's it's mentally, you're off game. You know what that's like, right? You, you don't even know where your next competition is. Maybe not even knowing where your next check's going to come from because, mm. you know, you're a paid athlete. So it's not been lately. It's not been what I'd like it to be, um, but he's done really well. The biggest thing that the biggest gift I think I gave VJ was I helped him to run better, and he really runs well. I mean, this kid can. He and I even he's in the book. I I alluded to the fact that he may not be the fastest runner I've ever met, but he potentially could be. One day he may be because he has tremendous capacity to run well. He knows what he needs to do, and he knows when things get a little off how to fix it, which has been really powerful for him. And any given day, I mean, I, I, I see this kid every week, right? I, I watch how he's progressed. And uh, matter of fact, his training partner that I also coach is right in his shorts now. And this guy couldn't, this guy couldn't run a seven-minute mile when I met him, and he's, he's running sub-five-minute miles now. Uh, not back to back, but you know his problem is he's got a real problem with distance. He gets past about three k, and he starts to blow up. But uh, he will stay right on VJ's shoulder. Matter of fact, the other day in a four hundred, he beat him. Uh, and mm. you know this is a much older guy, um, but we've been consciously following this process. These guys, these guys have been working with are doing these flow state workouts. And but you know, and I don't want it to sound like it's like this hoodoo voodoo kind of thing we're we're setting uh skill and science as the uh the precursor to the process it's part of the game you have to adhere to proper mechanics you have to understand what what your threshold is or what it looks like and and when it moves and and, and adapt so there is definitely science that's that's setting this, the table for this but the other end of it is this flow state and taking that information along with the proper mechanics and what have you and, and putting a game together. Okay. Well, I've been taking notes throughout this, <laughs> Richard. All right. And, and, and I have, I have several questions. All right. 
Um, and, and again, I, I do want people to read the book. Okay. So at any point, feel free not to like totally answer it or to answer it more like in a theoretical, this is the the mindset you need to go into the book expecting certain things. Yeah, well, sure. let me just say that uh, I, I'm an open book. You know? okay. I'm not I'm not concerned with, uh, you know, divulging secrets. or It's not about that at all. Cool. And I, I do appreciate that because a lot of people, when they have something that they want to sell, they want to keep it as mystical and mysterious as possible so that people can't do it without them. Well, I did, And I think I did that confidence in your approach is the sign of someone that's onto something real. I, I did this for me. Can I just get that out there? I wrote this yeah. book for mm. me. This is this is me confirming my work, and yeah. and you know you have to realize who you're talking to. I I, I hate going here, but it, it's kind of a dark place. I I look at this as like this is probably the last thing I'll write. I, I'm 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 going to be 68 years old. How many how many more years do I have to produce new stuff? Right. I mean, yeah. so it was important to me to get it out, and and whatever happens with it, what you know, if I get naysayers, I could take it. If I got people that embrace it, that's great. Um, if I make a lot of money off it, that's even better. But at the end of the day, I just pulled the arrow out of my chest is what I feel like. Mm. I finally got this thing out there and I, and I concluded the business. All right. Well, that skips me to my last question then, because, uh, which is this, this seems like volume one to me, you know, this is new territory. You're one of the first people on this frontier, if not the first person to put it down on paper. And you say you've been doing it for a year and a half, which is long enough to see, that it's not fluff, but it's short enough to know that how long, what is the, the long-term projection of something like this? So is this something you look at like your magnum opus or is this, are you going to revisit constantly and then write the second edition and the third edition as new things come over the years? Well, to be honest with you, um, it was probably stupid of me to say, this is probably the last thing I'll do. Good. <laughs> I, you, you know, you, you can never say never. And mm -hmm. uh, if you asked me a, a year and a half ago, to write a workout for CrossFit, I would tell you that, sorry, man, that's not my jam. I've never been in a CrossFit facility in my life, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. And then here I go, I write a program that's being recognized internationally from people that are in the CrossFit industry. Uh, so I, I don't know what the future holds, um, but I know it was important for me to get this done. Uh, do I think it'll, it's gonna evolve? Will my thoughts evolve? I'm sure they will. Uh, I don't intend to, uh, to discontinue my work. I mean, my day-to-day -day teaches me. I learn from the people I interact with. And who knows what tomorrow holds? I, I may I may come up. I may do something else. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. Hmm. I will say as a testament to your – I don't know if everybody followed that CrossFit gentleman that lived overseas that you know had a 200-some percent exponential increase in capacity. But I followed, and I watched his posting along the way. Um, I must say it was nothing short of astounding to see how much that dude improved. In you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I followed it because you put a little bit about it on your social media and he posted a lot on your behalf, if I'm not mistaken. And I and I had just seen uh, kind of followed that story for a couple months. And it was just really it was cool to see. I, it was incredible. He said he was feeling less fatigued, but getting out more work. His body had felt better than ever and his running and overall capacity on all the wads, if I'm not mistaken, like every right. all the classics just went through the roof. He yeah. was taking minutes off of all the classic wads. Like, yeah. Cindy and everything, wasn't he? Well, just crazy. You know what? Since you asked, uh, I got I I copied it because it was in, so important to me. I didn't want to lose it. Let's see if I can share it with you real quick. Just give you uh, some of the details. Okay, I'm going to read this. Okay, can I do that? 
Well, I just think it's going to build merit to what you're saying. And, and I saw it firsthand, oh, secondhand, and I was impressed. So. Okay, so I copied his email, and I'll, I'll just read it to you. It says, I, this is the headline. He goes, I am overwhelmed by the effect Dark Horse 2 had on my performance. It was just crazy. Partly, I had adjusted the weights uh, to my level, which is understandable. In the first benchmark wad, which was uh, Iman times failure, three front power cleans, three front squats, three push jerks, I used 155 pounds. I only reached seven rounds in the first test. After four weeks, I increased to 17 rounds, uh, which was just unbelievable. I would have been satisfied with 10 rounds. 17 blew me away. In the third test, I increased to 23 rounds. And finally, in the last week, it was an unbelievable 27 rounds. That's an increase of 285%, which is unbelievable. It was interesting to see that I achieved such huge success without additional strength training. I had also improved in all other wads, and I have improved all of my benchmarks, which is fantastic. So thank you very much. So I get this email, and I, I Google the guy, and come to find out the guy, you know, I want to see, okay, is this guy just blowing smoke? or who? The guy's got a master's degree in, in sports science. So you obviously, you know, what I cut out of here was, he, the recommendations that he had for me uh, going into uh, the third edition. <laughs> he wanted me to write another one. I'm like, yeah, you don't understand, dude. I'm, I'm really not about to do that. <laughs> but it was, you know, that you get, you get chicken skin, right? Got, the hair on my arms kind of like frizzled up when I, when I was reading this go, wow. But it's not the only one, mind you. I, what, I've had, wait, just a second. What was his level of, of conditioning coming into starting your dark? Well, he was a CrossFit athlete. And I mean, I didn't, I don't know the guy, so I, I don't know um, whether he was uh, an elite athlete or whether he was a, a hack or what, but it, it, it's immaterial to me. What I'm looking at is, you know, if the guy was lifting 155 pounds for the work and mm -hmm. could only get seven rounds and ended up doing 23 rounds in, in eight weeks with the same, that's a lot. That's a big deal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I wasn't discrediting. Yeah. I was just curious about what his no, prior I, fit I, I don't know the guy, so I, I couldn't say. Okay. Yeah. So, so this leads me to ask then, uh, God, I didn't know you had such a vast background with different athletes. I didn't know it went back this far. I didn't know we were actually talking to a celebrity today, Bracken, but I think we are. Yeah. Uh, but OC, what, what the heck? Like OCR really seems to be like, it's kind of got your heart a little bit, man. How did, did. how did that, how did that happen? You know, I think that we really, really nailed it was when I went on the cruise. I just saw the, the passion and the enthusiasm from this group of athletes and, you know, having gone to some races, you know, I, I used to visit some of the events with Hunter if they were local. Uh, I was, you know, I want to see, I'm tr trying to support the guy I'm working with him. So uh, I, I went to Monterey, I went to SoCal, uh, I went to some of the other, I went to the world championships four times. Um, I, I just found that the community of people was so different than any other sport I dealt in and, you know, realized that at the end of the day, let's not color it. Uh, my business, I'm a mercenary, right? I don't say, well, you're a football player. I don't do football players. If you're a football player with a problem and you come to me, I'm going to try to solve your problem. Um, but you start to develop an opinion about these different athletes from the sports they come from. Like, for example, I found that runners for the most part are pretty cheap. They, you know, they buy a pair of shorts. That's the shorts they wear when they run. That's it. A triathlon where a triathlete will spend a million dollars on his bike to eke out another five seconds, right? So just their mindset of the sport. But you know what? I, to be honest with you, and I'm going to get in trouble when I say this, but I don't care. Um, these geeks are really hard to get along with. 
you know? Everybody thinks they know everything and, you know, everything's got to be a pissing contest when you meet with them. But the I've traveled all over the United States doing clinics with athletes I've never met before. I'm, I'm on my way to Maryland here uh, next month. Um, and I've never gone into a group of people in this sport where we didn't get along marvelously. They're all really, really good people. I've never come, you know, you expect that one guy, right? Or that one girl that just like, oh my God, if I could just get away from her, let's get this over with, right? I have not had that happen ever. And I've been, literally, I'm telling you, I've been all over the United States doing these clinics. And I don't know these people from Adam. I walk in a room, they, they, they know who I am. They, obviously they signed up for the thing. And we go to work and, you know, we spend a weekend together and we, we come away friends. And so I, from that perspective, I've just been very passionate about the group. Uh, mind you, I still, uh, matter of fact, after this, uh, this conversation, I have a soccer player showing up that I've been working with for the past two years. Um, and, you know, so obviously I'm still, I got my toe in other projects, but um, from, if you said, who do you coach prim primarily? I'd say, yeah, hands down. It's OCR athlete. Okay. Um, and something else I wanted to ask you, uh, we had a conversation, what, a couple of days ago, Rich, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had a foot issue pop up. I haven't run now in a yep. week and a half. And yep. and as part of what you do, the first thing I said is, Rich, what do you think about collaborating on like a cross training program to keep me fit, maybe get to West Virginia still? And and the first thing you just said is like, none of that, man. like I want to see how you run, man. Like I know you can't right now, but you you deal with a lot of athletes with injury issues. And we I'm going to follow up this conversation with you off air, but um, do you – you always go back to the foundation when trying to get runners healthy. Like this is part of your work, correct? Taking a, an injured runner and making them healthy again. Isn't that what you do a good bit of as well? That's the bulk of what I do. All right. Well, explain that a little bit. Well, first of all, um, let's just say that you're, you know, you're injured and you've tried everything. You've gone to the physical therapist on a regular basis. You've seen the doctors, you've tried changing the type of shoes you wear, you you know, you've gone all through this process and you're really, really frustrated. And where this is really typical in cases like your own, which we had plantar fasciitis, that that's a really ugly injury. That thing just does not want to leave you alone, right? It has, luckily. Bracken and I don't know anything about injuries, by well, the way. Yeah. yeah, This is just for the listener. <laughs> yeah. So finally, uh, they find me, or maybe it was word of mouth, they find me. And so I get, I'd say that the majority of the people I meet come to me because they're injured and frustrated. And so we have to get back and look at the way they're moving because something they're doing is causing the problem. You know, you're, you're just not this amoeba or amoeba just floating in space. You're, you're hitting the ground. And the way you're hitting the ground is having influence over your body. And chronically doing the wrong thing over and over again leads to an injury. I found, by the way, I have to back up again. So I think it was about 10, 12 years ago uh, when I was doing my coaching certification, um, I introduced rock tape to my program and the the director of uh sports medicine for rock tape to even to this day after all these years is a guy named dr steve capobianco really intelligent guy and i said look i'd like you to present during my certification i actually had him present i had uh, uh matt fitzgerald came out and presented on nutrition and uh, at the end of the day i became uh very intrigued by this taping and I learned a lot about taping and, you know, again, evidence-based. I'm taping people, having success, not having success, what works, what doesn't. Um, but because I'm dealing with a lot of people with injuries, running-related injuries, I had to learn about them. I had to learn about what caused them. 
And so I ultimately ended up being sponsored by Rock Tape over the years. And uh, I attended all of the clinics that they provide and all the certifications they provide, all of them. I've done, I just recently did their uh, movement specialist certification. Uh, I, I did the, the blading, the cupping, the taping, the, I can't even think of all of the ones I've done with them. But they have such a vast uh, array of really, really intelligent people that present for these things on topics that you wouldn't even thought about. But I always felt that like, I need to know how to deal with these problems when I face them. When people come to me with a problem, what do I do? Is, oh, I don't know. Maybe go see the doctor. Oh, I don't know. Maybe you need physical therapy. I want to look at the problem, what caused the problem, and let's deal with that. And so I end up treating a lot of people. Uh, I get a lot of referrals for that reason because I've had such great success with people and injuries. But um, at the end of the day, going back to you, and I, by the way, I'm glad you brought it up because mm-hmm. my, I was going to send you an email and I was going to tell you that my take on it is that if we dance around the injury to try to keep you fit, that's not going to improve your potential to succeed at, 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 at West Virginia. Right. We need to address the problem. We need to go headlong into the problem, cre- create a solution to that problem. So, Because, th- listen, you own the rest of it. I mean, coming to me to help you with cross-training, that's th- that's silly. I mean, you're, you're probably far and away better at that kind of work than I am. Um, mm-hmm. But, the, you know, my contribution would be to get you healthy, get you to a place where you're no longer having a problem so you can produce the work that I think you're, you're capable of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm on board with that 100%. I so wish you would have been able to come to my last clinic. I had the flu. It sucked. Dude, I know. It I know. sucked. I know. VJ Jones took my room for half cost, though, and then never even slept in it. it yeah, I know. Good. No good. Yeah, but anyways, yeah, we'll we'll talk that. We'll talk about that off air for sure. But yeah, that's yeah. something we're going to collaborate on. You're the guy. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Did I get off point? Did I not no, no you're the guy I'm going to go to for that. I think I just wanted people to understand that you're a student of biomechanics and that uh, that you look at injury, not as how do we get you back up and running and just patch job this. We look at the foundational core root of your mechanics, which are thus causing the injury. And, and that's a big part of what you do. And I don't think we just touched on that yet. No. Well, that's, that's like 90% of what I do. Right. Yeah. Right. Rich, what I, one, one thing I really like to do is I like reading up on what other coaches or advisors do with athletes. And then I like to watch what the athletes do on film because ah. I feel like there's often a, a big gap between what people claim they're working on and what shows up on race day. Right. And it's really interesting to me to watch athletes change over time because everyone's stride changes over time. Yep. Even if you don't try to, if you just do the same thing, we fall into habits or we get more right. efficient at certain pathways and you just look different. Right. And one thing that jumped out to me about your athletes really, really clearly over time is that they all start to run similarly. Yeah. Not that they run the same, right. but they have characteristics that I can look and be like, that's a Rich Diaz stride. <laughs> and and I would say Hunter and VJ are your two highest mm-hmm. performing OCR athletes. That's not going out on a limb there. But mm-hmm. they also have two really good examples of how people change their stride underneath you. Right. So I was lucky enough to race Hunter at one of his first races. And I've raced him through the years and oftentimes it's behind him. So I get to watch his stride a lot. And at the beginning, he had a lot of like his legs kind of kicked out to the side and he kind of fought and his head flailed. And if in watching Hunter now, he's a super compact straight line runner. Mm -hmm. And VJ over the years, when I first saw him at Warrior Dash World Championships, he had this really long loping stride that just looked like how you would want 
a little kid to run if he was really fast, but you could see that he was just going to waste energy on bad terrain or as he fatigued, he couldn't keep that stride anymore. And now he runs like a lighter, I don't know, just a lighter, like maybe quicker version of Hunter where his stride has actually shortened over the years, but it's that same kind of like metronome power where mile one, mile 10, it doesn't make a difference. He's still getting into the ground with power and off the ground with quick cadence. And those are just characteristics of like a Diaz stride. Yeah. Well, and, uh, so if I could just uh, interject, yeah. his stride's not shorter. It certainly it's, appears uh, more compact visually. Well, because his ground contact's closer to his body. But if gotcha. you look at his trailing leg in flight, mm -hmm. uh, and I've measured it. So, I mean, I, I have this. As a matter of fact, I, I don't know if I called it out in my, my book or not, but uh, I measured his hip angle. So... If you go from the apex of the hip to the forward knee and trailing knee and create uh, an angle, mm -hmm. his stride is typically about uh, an 80% degree angle, uh, where uh, Mo Farah is probably about 110. Mm -hmm. uh, most athletes that I measure their hip angle, they're about half. They're about, they typically run about 50, 46 to 55, somewhere in that range. So the hip angle is a testament of force production off the ground. When you have that eccentric energy coming out of the ground, you get big hip extension. And so when the, the, the key is to, to tighten up your, your, your contact with the ground. So, uh, and, and, I, and I've said this a million times, is stability is king in running. If you can't be stable when you land, you can't create force. If you can't create force, you're not going to see. I have, I have people ask me how to open up their hip angle. I say, hit the ground right. Mm -hmm. You know, just if you want to you hit a ball off a baseball bat well, Hit, hit the ball on the sweet spot of the bat or the, or, you know, I mean, I can go on and on with these analogies, but it's a function of where the initial force is created and where that force came from. And so I've drilled this in his head that he, he, he must land where he's got stability and maximal force production and not coming from him. I don't want him to create the force. I want gravity to, to gift it to him. Right. And so he, he, when he, he looks like he's very comfortable in his stride, is because he's not working as hard as the people he's running with. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and that was going to be my point. They don't, your athletes don't seem to be fighting themselves once they become veterans of your training. They seem to let their stride fall as it should and let their bodies just kind of continually generate energy rather than have to like each stride hit the ground and restart this whole like chain reaction. Yeah, I appreciate and, that. that. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. But but my, my point, what I'm getting to there is that you do something that I don't see a lot of people doing with their athletes, and that is compound lifts in the midst of intervals. Yeah, yeah. And I'm curious. Now, I, I'm a fan of, of compromised running, of, of running in the midst of, of uh, force production right. outside of that. But is that a component of how they have this like metronome power that they keep putting out? Or is that kind of just an accoutrement to what you do in training? Well, I, th I think that the, the two things that I, I really harp on is efficiency and economy. Efficiency mm -hmm. begets economy. We want to lower the cost of work. So when you need to produce high intensity work, you're available to do it. And so we have to, I mean, in OCR, these challenges exist. You have to come out of a dead run into an obstacle, stop the music, go to work, get out of the work, go to work. Mm -hmm. And so we have to, it's sports specificity. We have to throw those challenges into the work. And so it's, it's, it's a culmination of things that I try to create. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of the people that are out there in the world assume I'm uh, the running guy. They don't realize that I actually write 
programs for athletes that are going to do OCR, where it has all those ele elements of training involved, where they're, they're going to do the work. And I look, obviously, like you and, and Kirk, you, you look for the weaknesses and you try, try to try to get on top of those weaknesses. And, uh, you know, it's no different with me. It's the same thing. It's just the only thing that I think that I do different is fundamentally, these are running sports. And in a running sport, that's got to happen. You got to you got to get that worked out. You can't glaze over it. You can't like just discount. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really good. At, I'm really, really proficient at the obstacles. So, you know, it's okay if I heel strike a little bit. And I have people want to negotiate with me on the way they move. Well, I'm, I'm hitting 170 now. Is that okay? No, it's not. That means you're overstriding. If you're overstriding, you're breaking. If you're not stable, you're not producing force. You want to go faster, you got to do it right. And, and uh, you know, I'm a little staunch about it, but um, I, I, I love to see. Listen, I, I, you know, you talked about looking at my athletes run. Quick story. Up in Ojai, which is a little uh, community uh, uh, in the mountains near us, there's a, uh, a private school. Uh, and their, their uh, cross-country team is one of the best in the state. And uh, I had a client come from that school. She was a soccer player, collided, broke her tibia. Uh, I don't know how, but an orthopedic surgeon referred her to me. I worked with her. It was her last year. She figured it was over. She also ran cross-country. She figured it was over. Um, got to work on her, changed her mechanics when she was healed. Um, she ended up getting a scholarship at the uh, University of Portland, I think it was uh, for, for soccer and cross country. And I think I worked with her, uh, I think I saw her 10 times. Um, but then another kid that heard about her from the same team, father got a hold of me. So I want to bring my son in to see you work with him a little bit. And he started crushing it. So then I get a call from the cross country coach. He goes, I don't know what you're doing. He goes, but we're really intrigued and we won't, we're going to apply for a grant to the school to come spend private time with you to learn what you're doing. And so sure enough, I let the guy come down, but I went to his school and I had, you know, he let me work with his cross country team, which is, it's only happened once. Uh, so I said, okay, everybody run around the track. You could see the two people that I worked with running, like you painted them red compared mm -hmm. to the rest of the mm -hmm. people. Cause they're, they're smooth. They're, 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 you know, they're hitting it. They're, you know, and as opposed to the chaos that was going on with the rest of the kids. And typically what happens as you know, with these, these, or these organizations is um, the coach stands there with a clipboard. He's a coach, clipboard, assistant, cup of coffee. They're talking about the day, told the kids to run around the track, hard, easy, whatever. No consideration for individual movement patterns, nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, funny stuff. It's interesting. We talk about this concept on here a lot of you pay now or you pay later. Yeah. And it's always better to pay now. Oh, yeah. And that seems to be what form refinement is to runners. You can pay now and be a little less economical, maybe, or it's uncomfortable. And it you might be a little slower on a day-to-day -day basis at first and yep. long-term you're set for life or you can pay later. Yeah. And, and the instant gratification is not necessarily there. And you know, so a I, lot of people shy I, away from that. Is yeah. Well, look, it's the story of my life. I mean, um, you know how it is in the sport. Everybody has got a uh, season pass mm -hmm. and they're trying. Uh, I mean, they're going to, they're going to mortgage the house to find the money to get to these events. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, trying to, you know, set aside a weekend to stop the music and have somebody help you to improve the way you move, uh, understand the way your body operates energetically, um, and have a weekend worth of information. Eh, that's not that entertaining. You know, yeah. you know, it's, well, it's not sexy to say, I'm going to spend I'm going three to the weeks point. focusing on a metronome and on ground contact. 
Yeah. Then people want to know what's wrong with you. Oh, you right. okay? You hurt? What's wrong? Is is the one you know? We we keep talking about cadence and 180. What we're talking about is strides per minute, 180. Uh, yeah, strides per minute. Now, do you live and die by that? Is that uh, is that typically like? Is there any variance in that? Like, let's say you're six foot six or you're four foot six. Do you find that that is still the sweet spot, no matter your build? Well, so here's the thing. Um, try to take a satellite view of all of us. We're all standing on the planet and we got a satellite view. Yeah. We look like dots, right? Yep. Gravity doesn't care how tall you are. You're, you're, how far off the ground you launch yourself is all relative to gravity. Um, the stride frequency is like tuning the gait cycle to bring your foot closer to your body when you land. Yep. So um, if you were to, if someone would assume, well, if 180 is good, is 185 better? Well, 185 may be better from a standpoint of where you land, but the expense in turning your legs over that much quicker might be untenable. Um, if you're reaching a little further ahead of your body, that too is untenable because you're no longer stable. So it just turns out that 180 strides per minute works. Now, it's not, I want to be careful when I tell you this because a lot of people assume that's that's all I'm about. If you two are racing each other, and let's say, for example, you're not a student. You just you just been running the way you ran when you were in school. You're overstriding, heel striking, but you're tough as nails, and you've never been injured, and you run the way you run, and you just don't care. And your expense in your effort relative to Bracken's, because he is a student, and he's landing properly. He's not overstriding. He's not breaking. He's not going through all this process. His cost of work is much less than yours. Right. He can mess with you. He could he could jack his cadence up to say 190 to press you to keep up. Now your expense is getting untenable. He may regress a little bit, fall back into 180, which was fine for him a while ago, keeping you in check, and then hit you again. So think of it like a boxer jabbing you and jabbing you and jabbing you. He's sticking you because he's in control. He's a master of his mechanics. He can he can put it out there when he wants to, back off when he wants to, and he's playing you. Mm -hmm. I'll show you a really good example, and you probably didn't see it, but the uh, the um, the um, Olympic qualifier for the marathon in Los Angeles um, years back, um, Mo uh, Kofletsky. Meb. Meb, yeah. Meb Kofletsky. I'm getting get too mistaken. Mm -hmm. Kofletsky was the guy at the time because he had just won the Boston Marathon. And, you know, the, the commentators were talking, oh, Meb, Meb this, Meb that, Meb this. And Meb knows how to. And sitting on his shoulder the whole time, up to about 18 miles, was Galen Rupp. Mm -hmm. Galen Rupp runs better than anybody I've ever seen on the planet. Right. Mm -hmm. His mechanics are on point. He set the uh, 5K indoor record, American record. Uh, I think it was 12.58. I watched it. I set my metronome on the screen while he was running. Dead on 180 strides per minute. And uh, anyways, long story short, Galen Rupp sitting on the shoulder of Meb and hit mile 18. Galen says, okay, that's enough of this. Clips him with his shoulder, passes him, and drops him like a hot rock. Never going beyond that stride frequency. And you could see that he was actually increasing his speed without increasing the effort. He played him. He played him right up to the time where he said, okay, far enough. Let's go. I'm going to take this guy out. 
And that, that to me is a testament of what you can do once you own it. So I, I don't tell people, don't, if, if you're a new student, you need to stay at 180 strides per minute to own it. What do you, what do you say to the athlete? So I know myself, Brack, and I run at a lower cadence. Most people do without being conscious about it. Um, but then my cadence will pick up. Let's say if I go out and do threshold work or fast intervals, I'll rise above 180. But on my easy runs, you know, if I'm not cognizant of it, I can be in the 160s. I want 60s. Okay. I know that makes you just cringe probably. I'm dying here. I know you are, but that's why we're going to get together on this. But anyways, so my, my, I hit my cadence once I hit certain pacing. I understand that's a flawed system is what you're, what you're trying to say. You don't want your frequency to dictate your speed. Correct. But it takes a certain speed to get my cadence where you would like it. So what is that telling you? You're not in control. Correct. I mean, that's, that's, and that's the typical runner. If you look at anybody's Strava data and see their, their cadence, yeah. which pops up, everybody's in the 160s, low yeah. 170s, if at best, some 150s even. It's so it's just it's just very interesting. It's something worth putting some more thought into. But but the theory is is that your pace should not dictate your cadence uh, even a little. Your cadence should remain the same whether you're running 10 minute pace or well, four minute. So pace. there's there's a point where you can't maintain greater speed and maintain cadence. You're going to have to dig it a little deeper. Um, but you need to have control of that circumstance. Right. I, I also work with sprinters. I, I, right now, I, I have uh, two clients. One that is running the 200 for uh, uh, USC, and the other one's running the 100 for UCLA. <laughs> and I, uh, ironically, they're they're actually related. They're cousins. Hmm. Um, and they'll probably both, if we have an Olympics, they'll probably make the Olympic team, and, and they'll probably go to the Olympics. Um, but their stride frequency is off the hook, right? I mean, their leg turnover is so fast, but we're not talking about energetics anymore. As long as their contact point stays where I want it to, I could care less. Uh, the one girl, and you know, again, she she came to me because um, she was injured. She was redshirted, and her mother, who's a chiropractor, um, apparently got the you know the uh, recommendation from one of her trainers to come find me. Uh, they live uh, about a hundred miles from here. And she contacted me, says, my daughter has had terrible problems with her back. She's not been able to run. She's probably one of the most capable 200-meter females in the sport right now and can't run. Brought her to me, looked at the way she was moving. She was overreaching, and she, the braking force is going straight up into her hip, jacking up her back. I treated her back. You know, Mind you, her, her mother's a chiropractor, sat there watching me treat her daughter. Mm. I treated her back, gave her recommendations on how to t- deal with her back once she got her home. And changed the way she was moving. And that same week, she went back and uh, and trained with the team, and was doing the, these uh, these hurdle drills with a twenty pound vest, where they were you know they're jumping over and back, over and back these hurdles. Uh, I, I don't know precisely how the drill went, but she explained it to me, pain free. And and ever since she's been running, and she's 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 cool. She's she's doing really well. Um, uh-huh. But the the problem was she was breaking, and she was nobody was identifying it. Uh, I don't think anybody put her up on a treadmill and slowed, slowed the business down to let her see what she was doing wrong. I brought it to her attention. I showed her what to do, started working on the drills to, co- to correct the problem. And lo and behold, she was after it. Then I got the call from the cousin who was the 100 meter guy, <laughs> you know, because I'm not hurt because, but I want to go faster. I need, he needed four hundredths of a second to make the team, which is nutty to me. I just, you know, mm-hmm. but it's, it all comes back to that. I mean, the mechanics are, are absolutely critical. And um, I think I've invested more time in that aspect of things than probably anybody else in this sport, for sure, uh, which is why I probably, 
am talking to you now is that just, just a lot of people have heard that, that I'm the guy that takes care of those problems. Do you deal with upper body mechanics, arm swing, uh, shoulder yeah, carrying, all of that? That's part of it too. Oh yeah. For you, you, that, by the way, that's the hardest thing in the world to change. You know, people have this, uh, this trademark arm, arm swing that they do. And I'm telling you, I, that's the last part of the puzzle that I, I'm constantly harping on people about. And it's, it's really, really difficult to get them to change that. I mean, I mean, I'm not even terribly sure that I, I, I can do it. What's your number one cue for people then? For arm swing? Yeah. Well, I don't want to see a lot of rotation in the shoulders, first, first of all. Mm-hmm. So when your arm starts crossing your body, it's because your shoulders are rotating. And if your shoulders are rotating, you're going to get concomitant uh, rotation of the hips, which is going to result in uh, rotation of your, your leg. So your, your, your tendency to cross midline with your foot is, is very apparent. I see this all the time when I, when I do video on people. And then what ends up happening is your ground contact would generally be on the varus edge of your foot, the pinky toe side, side of your foot. So you're, you just um, eliminated access to the greatest force production of your foot. You know, so you don't want to land on the outside edge of your foot first. Mm. And generally when you do that, it's because your, your lower limb is ahead of your knee when you hit the ground. And so you add rotation to it and the whole thing's just a mess. So I, 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 first thing I want to do is I want to get them to quiet the shoulders. Quiet the shoulders, you quiet the hips. Quiet the hips, you, you sort out the landing. Do you like hands in one sagittal plane or are you okay with a little bit of circle in there if it keeps the shoulders good? Um, again, I, I find that's probably one of the hardest things to change. Uh, mm-hmm. In a perfect world, I'd like it not to be swinging around like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, as long as, as you suggested, the shoulders are quiet, um, I give a hall pass. You know, Every gotcha. now and then I'll see a little weirdness going on, but the rest of it's working, so uh, I leave well enough alone. Uh, if I could change it, I would, but I just know a lot of times it's just, it's a losing proposition. And personal curiosity of mine, I was, I was doing some reading actually just uh, on my, what was it, leading the night before surgery. So just a, two weeks ago, I was reading a study on the effectiveness of arm swing. And I'm sure you've, you've researched all this, but they, yeah. there was a study that showed you that the average runner only loses two to 3% inefficiency with their arms tied behind their backs. <laughs> and and it was kind of mind-blowing. I, I looked into that more, and there's that school of thought that arms do not derive your running power. What's your yeah. take on that? Well, I, I don't think that they do. I, I think that's a, a, it's a rhythmic effect. So, so uh, what I typically will do with people when they're having a hard time landing 180 strides per minute is I tell them to set the metronome to their elbow swing. So just try to get your elbow to cock back at that stride frequency or that, that cadence yeah, and your feet will entrain to your arms. So I guess if that's true, then there's an argument that there's efficiency that can come from the arms that relate to your feet. Right. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. And now it, as, a, as far as uh, losing 2% efficiency by tying your hands behind your back, I would challenge you to do that and see whether you can, you can run a mile, uh, you know, 2%, you know, within 2% of your PR, um, without your arms being trapped. And I think it was a trainable thing over the course of weeks that they arrived at the other end within 3% of whatever test they had done. And I'm not saying this is the yeah, the yeah. of running. No, no. But- well, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd imagine if you trained yourself to do that, you could probably arrive at that conclusion. Um, uh, you know, it's the same thing applies to like people talking about don't mess with your stride frequency. Mm-hmm. I've had people, that's a big argument we hear these days is, oh no, it's natural. You know, don't don't mess with your stride frequency, you'll get injured. Um, and then you see studies that look at injury rate and people making modifications to the way they run initially 
and it's chaos, right? Yeah. But that's part of the learning process. You just have to invest the time, slow down and, and, and learn it. And then I don't see very many studies where they say, okay, here's the way we found them. We made these adjustments and six months we came back to them and seen how they were running, whether it was uh, having ill effect or whether it was improving the way they move. There's no research like that yet, uh, except for maybe my own. <laughs> I could yeah, show you. You see a lot of six to nine weeks trials, not six to nine month. Yeah, tests. right. Well, you know what the problem is? Is there's no money in it, right? Yeah. A lot of this research just uh, well. Look at you know the uh, you're probably familiar with Carvonin's method of heart rate reserve. I'm not. Well, Car- Carvonin is uh, was a scientist that came up with an equation for heart rate prescription, where you you factored in your resting heart rate. Okay. So if you get certified by a a national strength and conditioning association or NASM or ACE or any of those uh, certification bodies, um, they refer to Carvona's method of heart rate reserve when they're developing prescription for heart rate. Carvonin did this research on six people. (laughs) (laughs) He had six people that he actually conducted this business with. And all of a sudden it's the gold standard for, for heart rate prescription. Yeah. It's absolutely ridiculous. You know, and so I look, you know, I'm looking at these are the people that people are following. And I'm thinking, well, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to pay attention to what these guys are doing when I've got a thousand research studies right here in my my laptop? Just start printing, dude. You know, pull them out and look. Rich, I wanted to ask this question earlier, and this is significantly out of order, but it's just a curiosity that I don't know about you. And we're going to have to work towards closing this thing down here anyway. So uh, one last curiosity. Do you... Did you end up having like a running or a triathlon pedigree yourself as far as personal achievement in athletics? Like what is, it sounds like you were involved in some capacity. I just don't know what. Well, I started running, jeez, uh, after I, I decided that, you know, my, my, my new lease on life is going to be fit, not, not be, you know, this animal that I was before. This is post being 27 and drinking yeah. all the time. Okay, yeah. Well, no, actually I was probably running then, but I, I, I was hurting myself. I used to run on railroad tracks. <laughs> because a, a friend of mine, a guy that was Mr. Michigan, big bodybuilder, he would run on railroad tracks to develop his calves. Oh. So he just hit the ties, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, because Paul, his name was Paul Motney. I, because Paul was doing it, you know, it must be cool, so I'll do it. I got the worst case of shin splints in the world, right? Mm. I mean, I ruined myself. And I couldn't even – so what I would do is I would tape my lower leg really, really tight with adhesive tape mm-hmm. or athletic tape. And then go back on the railroad tracks and do it again. <laughs> um, so, but I, I came out of that, and um, my first goal was I want to run five miles. So I slowed down, I ran five miles, and then I said I'm going to run ten miles. Uh, now I'm on Hawaii. By the way, my roommates were really accomplished runners at the time. Um, uh-huh. Actually, I talked to one of them just the other day. He's 61 years old now, I think, maybe even a little older. Um, he run he ran the Honolulu Marathon, I think, 219. Oh, something fine. like that. Uh, and I ran with him uh, somewhere behind him. Uh, but I ran, I, I ran a couple, three marathons, a half million, half marathon. So I was a runner, uh, did triathlon. I, I've competed in several triathlons, uh, actually podiumed in a, in a race. Actually, it was the Louisiana State Championships. I, I, I podiumed in a, in a half Ironman distance race. Um, nice. But I, I, you know, my accolades don't go back to, you know, run like me because I was a great runner. Hmm. Uh, I was in the game. I know what it feels like to suffer. I know what it feels like to run a marathon. I know what it feels like to run a 70 mile week. Um, um, fitness was my game for a long time. I've, hmm. I've owned health clubs for over 15 years, trained trainers to be trainers. 
certified by everybody that there is out there. I, I, I've been down. I've, I mean, I've got all that behind me, but uh, I never banged the drum said, you know, um, I was a great athlete when I was a kid. So do as I do and be as I am, you know, which is good that. because there's no correlation. No, there's not. It's, it's so not. true. There is zero correlation there. You learn. I feel like the way you approach your, like your, your philosophy and training, like, for example, I took four years of, of Spanish in college and I learned a good bit. And then I went and spent 10 days on a vacation in Mexico. And I learned more in Mexico than I did in four years of schooling or personal like interaction. I feel like just that'd be a correlation between like you working with your clients and learning through how many various subjects and test studies over how many decades. It's like you can't replace that with your own running. You have to see it through so many different subjects. Right. I, mm -hmm. I have yeah, and that's an interesting thing that brought up because um, my education is is offered to me by the clients that visit me, mm -hmm. and have been for a long time. It's for years and years and years I've been doing this. So um, I guess one of the, the only benefits of being old and surviving is is the information that you can obtain over time. Can't argue that. <laughs> Well, Rich, I alluded it to it earlier that I still had outstanding questions about your book. Okay. And we're coming to the end of our time here. So I'm kind of just going to like fire three or four at you. They don't need, they don't deserve huge in-depth answers, but just uh, uh, broad strokes answers, because I got to assume that a couple of people are going to have similar questions when they hear about your philosophy differing from the, right. the Everybody theologians else. that they are prescribed to currently. So first of all, um, polarized training is widely uh, believed to be extremely, extremely effective right now. Does your, uh, your, your, your style of training right now with your infinity symbol and your flow state workouts, do you care about your relationship between anaerobic and aerobic and being polarized? Or is it all about mimicking the demands of your race? Deep well, side. I, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking it through here. I, I, um, I'm not terribly concerned with polarizing anything. Okay. Um, uh, I, so the analogy I offer, and I'll try to be quick. People follow your training programs. They do what you have them do. The gun goes off and all that shit goes out the window. All they're doing now is trying to survive and, and try to chase the guy in front of them and, and not blow up. Mm -hmm. You know, philosophy of training, everything just out the window, uh, typically. Not everybody, but typically. Um, what I want people to do is train more akin to the way they would rate. Mm -hmm and the way they would race and get the most out of them as opposed to tr trying to mimic what somebody else is doing. You know, take somebody yeah. out when it's your time to take them out. You know, obviously you can't let people get away from you. You, you can't, you know, I, I've had this conversation a million times with VJ where I would give him some recommendations on how to approach an event based on who shows up. Yeah. And I would tell him where I want him to be. Here's where I want you to sit for the first part of this race. Wait, you know, because... His tendency, because he's young and enthusiastic, he might go out a little too hard, blow up. You've seen him do it. Um, and But if he lays in the pocket, let time go, he can he generally take guys out late. I've mm -hmm. seen him do that a million times. Um, so I want people to operate the way their bodies want to operate. I don't want to I don't want to dictate any process to them other than, you know, we have to have the necessary ingredients in the process. Where they fall into play is relative to your capacity and the type of event you're approaching. That makes sense. Is your is your take on volume kind of in that same vein? Yeah, I don't I don't say okay if you want to be successful everybody's got to go 80 miles a week. Uh, yeah. Some people do better with more volume than others. 
Uh, I'd like to see uh, VJ sit in about 60 a week, just through my experience with him. He's not been there yet, by the way, uh, but yeah. that's where I really want him to be. Um, and I think that's going to be appropriate for him. His problem is, is he's trying to keep his strength. I, the guy's skinny strong, by the way. You probably know this, right? Yeah. It's crazy strong yeah. for how big he is. Um, but I, I, uh, I really think that he's going to be more successful, at, at least in the mountain series events, if he, if he can get, get that type of volume in. That makes sense. In terms of doing your, your workouts, how does one fit like OCR specific work? How, how I've seen you having him do, you know, clean and press or things like that in between workouts. How does that manifest as a flow workout? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. No. So that's a standalone. It's an accessory, right? Now, but uh, so for example, the flow is really a function of the running component. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not really going to have that much control over the way you lift or go through an obstacle from an energetic perspective. Um, but what I hope is that the conditioning you get from the way you're approaching your flow will provide for you when you actually have to meet those challenges. So, so most, of the, most of the work I have them do are not high intensity lifts. They're mm-hmm. generally, uh, as you saw, very dynamic, multifaceted type of uh, approaches. I'm mm-hmm. trying to engage the entire body as often as possible. And so do you do flow workouts where you have obstacles, um, replication of some sort? Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you all can flow them. with that? Yeah, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so, so for example, uh, it just depends on what you have access to. So for example, I may have you, if you're in a gym setting, the treadmill is where you're going to run. So you may, you know, run for a round, get off, do an exercise, get back on the treadmill, run for a round, get off the exercise. Um, obviously, you can't run and do the exercise at the same time, with exception of carries. Where mm-hmm. there's carries involved, we, we, we absolutely approach a flow state. But yeah, we, we integrate the work as, as necessary. Okay. And, and, and my final question for you before you can leave with whatever you want to talk about with your book or, or, or people you want to thank or whatever it is, is uh, you are one of the biggest, I don't know if it's proponents or if it's just a function of ease of access, but you, uh, you use treadmills as much as anyone in this off-road sport does. And I'm curious on your, on your take of how you get people trail and technical terrain ready if if treadmills are their predominant uh, means of locomotion and training, you can't you can't teach uh, technical training on a treadmill. Mm-hmm. Um, I slowed down because I just thought of somebody that I'm working with that I have do 360s on the treadmill and <laughs> carry on the treadmill at speed and yeah. jumping on the treadmill backwards and running backwards. And um, so this is all about uh, mechanical efficiency, but you can't replicate roots. You can't replicate rocks. You know, you're not going to get that out of a treadmill. Right. Well, the the advantage that I think that the treadmill has in the rest of it is uh, it's a controlled state. It's a lot harder to run if I schedule the treadmill at 12 miles per hour than it is to, to maintain that type of pace on the road uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it, because the treadmill is rate independent. It's going to move regardless of what you do. Where running on the ground is rate dependent. You're not going anywhere unless you push yourself off the ground. Um, that entrainment alone is 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 got benefit uh the advantage obviously for me to watch what they're doing under controlled state is is a a huge advantage um and then from a from a climbing perspective um steady like i talked to vj about this the other day i want to set the treadmill up at about 15 percent grade and try to force them into a six minute mile pace on the treadmill for as long as possible 
he looked at me like I was out of my mind. I said, yeah. I said, but can I tell you something? When you go out on the trail, the trail undulates. The, the, the degree of angle that you're climbing on is going to undulate. It's either going to be steep or less steep. Um, but I could set you, my, my treadmill has a 28% grade. I can put you on a really serious grade and let you grind it out at a, at a force rate of work. You're not going to get any breaks. So I think from a work perspective and developing your energy system, that's got a lot of benefit. Um, I don't and won't for a moment suggest to anyone that the way to prepare for an OCR event is to get on a treadmill. Right. <laughs> You've mm-hmm. got to get out on the, it's, it's specificity. You've got to get out on the environment you're going to be racing um, often as possible. Okay. All right. So, so you, you make sure that any clients you have that are treadmill based also have to pair it with that skill as Absolutely. much as they can. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, unless they don't have the advantage, uh, I, I deal with it. You probably do as well. I've got people on the, on the Southern uh, part of the country where it's flat as a pancake and they have no climbing abilities uh, outdoors. You know, they, they depend on a treadmill. Uh, when Hunter was uh, in Florida and trying to get ready for uh, world championships, I told him, I said, find a hotel with about 15 stories, mm-hmm. and get in the staircase, you know? You know, ask for permission and just run up and down. The, I said, take the elevator down, Re- recover on the way down, run the way up, you know? Yeah. So, but there you go. All right. Any other questions, Bracken? You wanted to fire Adam about the book? Well, you know what? I feel like I could pick his brain all day, but I I think people have enough they can <laughs> ruminate on right now. And mm-hmm. and I think at this point, it's it's on them to get some of the, some more of their questions answered by actually getting the book and reading it. Right. Where do they, where do people get this, this book? Well, there's two opportunities. And uh, to be painfully honest, if I get them to buy the digital edition, I make more money. <laughs> so if somebody's trying to support this old man, they would go to my website, which is dshumanperformance.com. And I actually send them an e-version, which is ebook, And I actually include a PDF version for those that are not tech savvy. Um, but it's also available in paperback on amazon.com now too. Oh, it is. Uh, yeah, as of yesterday. Um, so... Yeah. Um, Congratulations. That's a a lot of people talk books and it never reaches production. And I've watched my dad write his own book and go through the publishing process and it's not for the faint of heart. So congrats for turning that thing out. Yeah. Thank you. It was a nightmare. Believe me. (laughs) Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. I, you know, it's like maybe I'll cure soon and then I'll think about doing something else. But for now, I've just had enough of it. Yeah, well, it's like giving birth. You need time away before you can. By do the it. way, congratulations to you guys on doing this podcast. I, I was really pleased to see that you guys put this together. Uh, I like the two the two brains. You know, I like I like where you guys are coming from on this. Um, so very good. I I uh, I haven't done a podcast other other than this one mm-hmm. in uh, I don't know three months or so. I was going to ask you about that. Are you dipping out of the game or just not? No, you know what? I just, other uh, focus of the book. Right I now. think once upon a time, I, I got on social media and I apologized to people and I said, I've just made up my mind that I'm not going to do a podcast unless I have something really good to talk about hmm. or somebody really interesting to interview. Because I have, you know, my podcast is about seven years old. Oh. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I probably have, uh, I don't know, about four or 500 episodes. And I've talked to everybody. <laughs> I've literally talked to everybody. And some people three or four times. And I just, uh, I don't know. I just, I'm busy. And the idea of going out and chasing people down to talk to. And and I don't know about you guys, but I go through a really heavy ed- editing process when I when I do my podcast. And it, it takes a lot of time. It's a lot of work. And uh, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't want to completely disband it. Uh, 
I probably should do a podcast given that I just wrote a book. Mm. Um, but I don't know. I just, I don't know what I'm going to do anymore. I just, uh, I just face the day every morning. I put my feet on the ground and say, good news. I got up. I'm, I'm still alive. Uh, and there's still about three quarters of a bottle of scotch downstairs. So uh, <laughs> in, case Kirk, in case Kirk shows up. Yeah. Save that for me. Will you? I'll tell you what, starting this podcast, I didn't, you know, you think you're going to start a podcast and you're going to spend an hour a week just bullshitting with people and then it's gonna You're going to wash your hands of it, but you don't realize once you plug it into a full-time job on top of it, scheduling interviews, running social media, the time that this has taken, Brack, and I think you can agree, is well past what I anticipated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell you what, Worth it. We, I, I do the editing process of it. And like yourself, I don't like putting anything out with a ton of like errors and background noise. Um, right. You're going to be the exception. Because of scheduling issues today, I'm editing and putting this up directly as soon as we finish here, <laughs> which I've never, ever done before. So I'll do my best to clear you up. But <laughs> the one guy that. who has his own podcast and cares how it sounds is going to be the guy that gets our most rushed production values. Yeah, You're going to see this yeah. be put out in about uh, maybe an hour, Bracken? What do you say? Yeah, something like that. That shows you You're how much. That shows you how you much can we're do it in an hour. That's some that's some good stuff there, but well, anyone can do it in an hour. It's just how awful does it sound? I honestly, uh, usually my podcasts are about an hour. It takes me about three, four hours to conclude that business. Yeah, and it's usually me correcting me, right? Because I don't like the ah uh, ands, uh, uh, all these little yeah. hesitations that you hear in your own voice that you're like, God, what a what an idiot! And he was like, I can't take it. So I go through and you know I get the. Uh, uh, Adobe Audition out, and I just start cleaning it up. Mm. And then you get this little annoying hum in the background because somebody's on their cell phone or something. And yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, it's Every a great time. Yeah, we it's don't we don't get rid of the ands and ums. Me and the word um are definitely in a fight, and we have been for a lot of episodes. Yeah. I got to work yeah. on that. I remove at least half, Kirk. Do you? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. And I I apparently say the word like as my filler, which is awful. I feel like a teenage girl, but <laughs> it's, 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 it's something I have to work on. Well, you know, the, the other end of it is, is that when I first started doing podcasts, nobody was doing podcasts and I got to be uh, very busy with it. I mean, I was getting some crazy traffic. Uh, I think uh, my best month was uh, about 115,000 uh, downloads. Jeez. And uh, when that started happening, I started monetizing. And that made it interesting because then it became a job. And then you got sponsors that you promise you're going to do four episodes a month. Mm -hmm. And uh, then everybody started doing it. And then, then there's no money in it anymore. So uh, I can't even monetize my time. So um, when I try to negotiate with a sponsor and they want to give me an affiliate code or some stupid shit like that, right. uh, and, I, and I just tell them no. And, and I, I, I said, I'd rather do it for free then have to do it for you for some chump change. And, and I just don't, so I, I should probably shouldn't be airing my laundry like that, but. Well, well, but, we're, we're making millions already on this. Yeah, you're, I'm just, sure you are. you're just missing the mark. You yeah, know, how you talk about this book is not made for anyone, but you, it's just get the info out there. That's kind of how we look at this. This is about get the info out there and let people decide how they want to use it in their training rather than hoard stuff. I think that's the successful path. Oh, and if not, we'll go under. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> there's no in between, right? Matt, That's right? Matt B. Davis said that there's no way we last a year, and I'm just sending him two middle fingers, and we're going to show him that that is not going to be the case, Matt B. Davis. We're making it. Why does he got to say something like that? Oh, he just likes – that's just his yeah facade, yeah. I know. I know. I mean, I don't know. 
know. He likes to stir the pot a little bit. All right. Yeah, so, a little bit. So you got to check out your book, right, Rich? We got to wrap this thing up. Um, but anything else you want to add to the conversation? Uh, well, if somebody's like enamored from this conversation and they feel like they want to get some Richard Diaz, I have a clinic in October. Same information is available on, on my website, which is D <clears throat> choking here. DiazHumanPerformance.com. <coughs> You'll get that for me once you <clears throat> bracken. No promises. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, so clinic in October. Um, all that information is on the website. Thank you, guys. Excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah. No, right. Thanks for coming on. It, you bring a perspective that is much needed in our industry, and I appreciate you taking the time to do it. Well, I, I'm, I'm very pleased to have done it. And, and I really, uh, you know, I said thank you already, but it's great to touch with you guys. I agree. And you're going to hear yeah. from me very soon anyways, because we got to touch yeah. base about getting my shit together. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Well, thanks for joining us today, man. Yep. Best to you guys. I'm out. Mm -hmm.